0: All we need is a place to be and
1: a few good friends for some company. If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave. We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked. If you drop on by, you don't have to knock.
0: We're happy to share whatever we've got. Hi, I'm Clay, and this is Yarn About You a podcast where I get to chat with people I know and love, as well as people I'd just like to meet and hear their story. Yarn About You would like to pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast is recorded, the Darkinjung people, and acknowledge the Elders, past, present and emerging, for their contribution and wealth of knowledge that they pass on from generation to generation. Today's guest is Mr Philip Bly, who's a passionate advocate for connecting people in our community. Phil's a proud Indigenous family man, an Aboriginal Elder and member of the Darkinjung Local Aboriginal Land Council. Phil's also vice president of the committee that runs the Five Lands Walk, an incredible 10 kilometre public walk held each year here on the New South Wales Central Coast. He's a fierce supporter of not only Indigenous inclusion and recognition in our society, but also Australians originating from other cultures. To me, Phil Bly is not only a respected elder and mentor in the Aboriginal community, but I'm also lucky enough to call him my friend. I
1: hope you enjoy our yarn.
0: Mr. Phil Bly, thank you for coming on Yarn about you. It's great to have you here.
1: Clive, there, thank you very much.
0: I want to but start at the very beginning, though. So tell me about your parents.
1: Well, that, that's where it all started with me because mm-hmm. they, you know they got together somehow, and here I am in front of you. So oh, you're going to have that but, talk it's about it, but, it, again. but it's a little but it's a bit of a story. It's oh. a bit of a journey up to here. <laughs> <laughs> so look, so both both of my parents are Aboriginal heritage from Queensland, um, and both were taken away as children and put on to missions, involuntarily. How old were they? Um, Well, my mum was taken away in 1921 with her mum and her auntie. And her auntie had a 12-year-old and a a six-week-old child. That was in 1921. They were taken from uh, Cloncurry, where my mum was born, so she's a a Kalkadoon woman, and to uh, Palm Island just off Cairns in Queensland and uh, she, she spent a number of years there but her auntie uh, Julia uh, died in 1922, so only some months after they went over to, um, to, to Palm Island. Uh, her auntie Julia was actually sent to Phantom Island, which is just off um, Palm Island and um, that was uh, leprosarium, I think they call it. That's where they sent people with uh, leprosy and venereal diseases and other diseases which they didn't have any cure for at that time. And uh, so I, I don't know exactly what uh, she died of. We can only spec- speculate because that's where they, they sent people to that infirmary. And uh, so when my, my mum at the age of three was, was sent to um, Palm Island with her mum, I would say that they were separated because when I look back through history, my mum never actually said that they were separated when they went to Palm Island, but when I look back through history now, we know that the children were separa- separated from their mothers or their parents because you had the children's dorms, you had a boys' dormitory, uh, girls' dormitory, a dormitory for the women and, and a dormitory for the men and 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 everything was really regimented
0: so so when you say they were taken they were just picked up and taken away from their homes and taken to somewhere they didn't know where they were going they were just taken there and told this is where you're going to be from now on
1: yeah yeah so that so that's in 1921 so that's uh you know i guess it sort of follows on from the white australia policy in the around the 1900s when when australia was federated and uh it's around about that time, or, or even I think just before then, that um, they're taking Aboriginal people off the lands so that they can uh, open the land up for the you know so-called settlers, uh, and uh, that that's another story. But um, and uh, putting them on to missions. So what what was actually happening around about that around that time was um, people from lots of different Aboriginal countries, because Australia is made up of a lot of different Aboriginal nations. Mm-hmm. They were taken, not, and and not all of them really got along with each other, uh, very well all, all the time. Uh, there would have been skirmishes and disagreements and disputes and all that sort of stuff. And then they were all put together on on missions without any recognition of that. So, yes. when, so, so mm. when
0: you talk about missions for mm. the people that don't understand what a mission is, yeah. can you explain a little bit?
1: Well, a, a mission is a place, a designated place where uh, they sent Aboriginal people uh, who. Uh, you know, took take them off their land to put them on, on, on missions uh, to, uh, I think, domesticate and civilise them in a way. But there was no and freedom there, was there? there, was there no, there? absolutely no freedom. It was involuntary. So there's absolutely no freedom at all because um, they had to uh, work, they had to, you know, sort of, the children had to go to school and, and, and be taught um, sort of basic uh, work values. In my mum's case, she was uh, trained as a domestic and in my dad's case, he was trained as a stockman doing that, that sort of work. And then they were put to work on, on uh, properties or uh, up in Queensland and uh, they were paid a nominal amount of money but they never received that money. The government actually kept that money. Wow.
0: And, and, yeah. they, and they weren't allowed to leave?
1: No, they weren't allowed to leave. So my mum... Uh, while she was a- allocated to Palm Island, when she became of working age, which I think would have been around about you know, 12, 13, 14, she was sent across to the mainland to a place called Moselle Downs up in, in Richmond where she, she was a, a maid on the property there for the, the Murrays that they owned the, the property. She had a lot of fond memories of that time she told me as as a child growing up that uh and, and the time that she spent there, the Murrays were really good to her and and uh, she had a good relationship with them um but the reality was that she was uh enslaved in a sense it was it was um indentured servitude mm-hmm. and the reason for that I think is because around the time that um Cook comes over here and so calls discovers uh, this continent and then later on uh, uh, Philip comes over in the First Fleet. Uh, around the world, if you look at the Americas, uh, what was happening in the Americas, the, the uh, Br- British had uh, been sort of defeated in the Civil War over there and uh, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't really uh, afford another war, and they were looking for alternative trade routes, I think, and uh, Australia was an, an option. And uh, But also, at the same time, s- people around the world were pushing back or rallying against slavery, and uh, so they couldn't call it slavery. They c- couldn't come over here and enslave the people. They came over here to... M- to um, I think it was King George the third who ordered them to you know have good relations with with the natives the reality was is that when I don't know what you really call it other than an invasion the first fleet lands in seventeen eighty eight and 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 uh, within fourteen months of that around on on the, on the central coast and down in Sydney area now what it's called down there um, the smallpox sort of races through the communities, which I think was deliberately released. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but um, we know that the British did bring vials of smallpox over with them on the First Fleet, and uh, at that time they were searching... They knew what smallpox could do, and they were searching for a cure, so there might have been some legitimate reason for bringing it over... But the reality was that they did bring it over, and it was released, and I think deliberately, and it just raced through the population around this area, and uh, you know, uh, as much as sort of ninety ninety five percent of you know people were really wiped out, and uh, I don't know how you recover from that, uh, well, you well know, you psychologically, emotionally, lo- lots of ways. <coughs> that's right. I, I don't think you think you do, and I, I think we see the. Um, uh, you know the evidence of that today with, with uh, you know um, mental illness those mm. uh, illnesses sort of track down through the generations and it, and it manifests in lots of different ways you know with um, you know drug and alcoholism and and, and uh, anger and frustration and confusion and all that sort of stuff
0: absolutely trauma stems from so many different things mm. um, and it's generational absolutely um, so your mum was on the mission, how did she meet your dad?
1: My mum was born in 1918, my dad was born in 1915, so December 1915, so there's about two, two and a half years, a little bit more uh, difference between them. My dad was born in Thargaminda, so uh, that's out in Kallalee Country, uh, Southwest Queensland, and... His mum uh, was a single mum. I mean, there's another story with his father, which I won't get into to that today. May, maybe that's for another time. Um, but uh, yeah, she she was a single mum, and and he had he was born in 1915 and uh, had two sisters as well. Uh, his his mum did marry uh, a fellow that. Um, and they lived in Kunnamulla, south of Thargaminda, for, for a bit. And as far as I can gather, he became ill and died. And uh, so around about 1924, 25, he became ill and died. And it was about 1924 that my dad was sent across with his mum and, and two sisters to Cherbourg Mission, which was called Baramba. And so they were sent to Sherberg Mission, and uh, it was there that uh, his mum, my grandmother, Maude, uh, meets Martin Bly, who was an re- Aboriginal man but a returned serviceman, and they got married in 1925. So that's how I get the name Bly, actually. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm no relation to Captain Bly. People ask me about that. But they get married and uh, you know have have more children. But the story goes something like this, as to why my dad and will well, the whole family actually get sent across to Palm Island, that um, apparently Martin Blake uh, had a bit of a altercation with police one afternoon or sometime, and I think it was over a racehorse or a race, and because uh, these guys were stockmen and they're pretty serious about their horses and they love them and and, and the, you know, they really love the country and, and, and that sort of lifestyle, and uh, I think in the afternoon, they're, they're painting the house in Cherbourg on the mission, and in the evening or at night, the police come and take them, they, I think they're chained up, they're put in, in cars or trucks or whatever, taken to uh, Mergen, which is just down the road, uh, to uh, the railway station there, they get put on a train and up to up to Cairns and then uh, on a ferry across to Palm Island and Palm they they Island. had they had no choice in it and uh, so
0: that's how they ended up on Palm Island together.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they end up uh, on on Palm Island. They meet meet each other there and uh, about. Early 1930s, uh, my dad is sent back to Cherbourg, so uh, they, they go back to Cherbourg Mission. And by then he's a, a young man, uh, a, a stockman. He's uh, droving up around northern Queensland. I think they even go over into the Northern Territory, but he's droving up around northern, northern Queensland and he meets up with my mum again at, at uh, Richmond Station, at uh, Mosul Downs in Richmond.
0: Oh wow so the, mm. so they didn't actually get together at Palm Island, but they met up again later on
1: well i I don't know if there's any backstory there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they never talked about yeah, probably. that I'm sure I'm sure there is um, so, that, so it probably wasn't yeah. a complete accident yeah, well, well, you've got to understand that sherberg's southwest of queensland, Richmond's a fair way up, mm. and you can't leave the missions without permission, so he's. Designated to Sherberg Mission, he's on a job going up to um, droving up, up around northern Queensland and I think even into the Northern Territory, and he can't wander off. If he wanders off, off he's a criminal and the police would come after him. So he, he's got to s- uh, stay with his job. So uh, he's—I he's, uh, don't know whether he had any really real say in it, but. His job would have taken him to Richmond and that's where they met up again.
0: And you, you've told me before that they had to get permission to get married.
1: Oh, yes, yes. So, so um, uh, I guess there's a lot of detail missing and we'll try and fill in the blanks because uh, there's no sort of real um, record of, of uh, every move that they made as young people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, they had to get permission. I've, I've seen the, uh, the permits and uh, so I've got a r- uh, record of those and um, that permission was granted and they caught a train from Richmond down to, to Cherbourg and uh, they left 3pm, I think it was a sort of a sunny afternoon in, in, in Richmond and they were advanced £1 each from their, their wages that the government was holding for them.
0: Oh, nice yeah that's that's, uh, to generous, generous. <laughs> yeah so that, that was <laughs> to get down
1: to uh well to Mergen on the train and then uh, you know so I think it's about f- uh, you know four five six seven kilometers whatever it is from Mergen to to sh- to Sherberg to the mission and uh yeah, so they got married at sherberg on on the mission I haven't seen any photos of the wedding uh of've of, uh Scoured the internet and I've, I've found quite a lot of uh, a number of photos of Aboriginal people who were married on the mission. Uh, one photo I saw would have been uh, six couples getting married. I think on the one day. Uh, I don't know whether they got married with other couples at all at the same time, but I, I'm because there's a lot of other photos around. I'm sh- sure there would be some of, um, and I'm hoping that there would be some of oh. my parents. Somewhere, or, or one of, of my parents somewhere getting married.
0: Absolutely. How yeah. amazing would that be to find? We've yeah. got to find those. Yeah. We so, have to find
1: those. The, so that, that'll, uh, you know, require a, ship, uh, a trip back to Sherberg and doing some digging there. I've, I've been back, uh, you know, a, a few times, and uh, but I haven't spent an, enough time there really to do that sort of digging.
0: So what year was that?
1: That was in uh, 1938, 1938. They get married and yeah. they
0: obviously liked each other because they had how many kids
1: oh eight children Wow, yeah so I'm the seventh of eight so so they they get married in nineteen thirty eight my mum's actually uh, nineteen going on twenty when they get married so she's not of legal age a, actually so you know uh, she had to get a special permit to to get married and uh, and my dad's uh then how, how old is he? 22, I think, going on 23. And uh, so, yeah, they, they get married and, and uh, I think it's about two years after that, 1940, my eldest brother was born. So that's the first child. And when he was two months old, they got permission to come down to Burke, which is where I was born. They had to get permission because my dad had an uncle who who was living down in Burke. And uh, so he, he got permission to go down there. And the reason why they went down to Bourke with Aboriginal people up in Queensland, they, there was a sense that there was more freedom south of the border than there was in, in Queensland. Uh, Queensland was really a horrible place and there was really no freedom for Aboriginal people back in those days. My own brother then, my eldest brother, was actually two months old. And I remember my mum saying the reason why they uh, left queensland was to get away from all the trouble up there what she meant by that exactly i really don't know i can only speculate and, and look back uh sort of telescope back into our history and and make some assumptions as to uh, what that trouble meant so they go down to burke and and uh, they don't go down together actually my my dad goes down first and uh He's actually uh, uh, told a story about the first night that he got down to Burke. I think he was camping under a bridge. So I don't, I don't know exactly how he got down, but he was camping under a bridge with this uh, old swaggy who was cooking up some food, and and invited him to share the food with him. And my dad had some food with him, and and the swaggy said, "You know, what have you got there?" He said, "I've got an onion." He said, "Hold on to that. We might need that later." (laughs) Wow. So you got to realise this is 1940. There, there's a war on in Europe. It's a, it's, it's a Second World War. And my dad said, well, you know, what, what are you cooking there? He said, snake. So they were really living off the land. Yeah. And uh, so my mum comes down uh, a little bit after that. Uh, she finds her way to Kunimala and... Is picked up by a family friend whose name was Keithy Martin, an Islander guy. So uh, they have connections up in Queensland as well. I think Queensland back in those days was really cosmopolitan. When we look back in history, there was a lot of people that came from uh, islands, mm-hmm. the South Pacific islands, and and uh, you know from the Asian countries, uh, from you know, even Afghan, uh, Afghanistan, China, places like that.
0: So by this time, your mum's travelling with one child.
1: With one child who's two months old, and it's picked up at in Cunnamulla by Keithy Martin, who has the mail truck. So it must be delivering mail, you know, t- from Burke up to places like Cunnamulla and she gets a ride back down to Burke. And I don't know where they actually stayed, but I do know that they were living uh, in in Burke as what call what was called a halfway. It was halfway between. Burke and North Burke, so I think that they might have been sort of uh, a couple of kilometres out of Burke in uh, living on on some in some sort of house and property. I don't know how long they they are there for, but they. Uh, my dad gets a job on a property outside Burke towards Brewarrina called Beemery Island, and it's called Beemery Island because when it you know it rains and there's a big flood, then you know it, it turns into an island. Wow, but. Uh, so I think he was sort of managing a, a, a property there, and uh, when you think about it, it's only de- when they come to New South Wales that the money they earn they get to keep.
0: So how long were they in Burke? How many kids did they have in Burke?
1: I know that we had uh, I think the first three. So there was three boys: Percy, Roy, Lance. They were they were, I think they were all uh, born when they was in Burke. Well, Roy and Lance would have been, and I, I could, my older sister I think she might have been born there as well but they were actually they are actually living on Beamery Island when the se- second child is born so I think it's about 16 miles something like that I don't know what that is in kilometers maybe they around about 30 k's or something like that outside Burke but my parents when Roy was born in Burke Hospital they took him home in a horse and cart so that that's quite a bit of a sort of a trip I think for that Distance, absolutely. <laughs> Back in those days,
0: so they 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 were in Burke for for all the children.
1: Yeah, in and around Burke. Yeah, yeah, not not actually in the township itself, but um, the uh, my parents were living on Beamery Island then, so which is about you know thirty k's or something like that outside Burke, I think. But then I sort of can't connect all the dots perfectly. But after that, my dad gets work around Byrock. Which is a bit about about seventy seven k's or something like that outside Burke. So it's on the Mitchell Highway mm-hmm. before you go into Burke, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a really small town. Sort of basically, uh, you know, a pub and uh, they had a grocery store, which was a, a small, a small store and um, police station with one pop and and uh, a service station. A trains, st- uh, you know, the trains would stop there. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, my dad got a, a job working as a uh, fencing contractor. He was actually employing uh, at one stage about seven or eight men. Cause there wow. was a lot of work around that time on, on, on the properties out there. And, and uh, I know that up until 1951 they were living in a tent. Outside Byrock, so Byrock's only a really small place, and it's a it's a rural community. So
0: in a tent with all the children.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so 1951, the fifth child is born. So they had um, four children in a tent. Yeah, okay. and I don't know exactly how long they were living in a tent, but they were, they were in the in a tent. I think it's something like 10k's out of Byrock before you get in there, and. Uh, in 1951, they buy a piece of land in Byrock and and build a house on it. And uh, the uh, fifth child is born. It's David, and and then uh, Danny comes along uh, a few years later, and then and I come along after that. And then I've got a younger sister. Yeah. So the the four younger children, you know, we we are living in Byrock, and that's all we really know at that. Time and and there's a school there which is a composite school and uh, from K to six after you yeah. after you finish grade six uh, you go on to what was called correspondence so so you studied remotely yeah so we all went to school there and and um, up until oh, I was probably about eight, I think, seven or eight, and then our house burnt down and we actually moved back to Burke. How did your or house burn down? It was, um, I remember the day we were at school, all, all the kids, and um, the, the older, older siblings, they were, were working. My dad was working and my mum was uh, was home, but I think she went over to the shop and uh, the um, we had one of those kerosene fridges.
0: Oh. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, apparently that's what caused it.
0: So you ended up going back to Burke from there,
1: and that's where I, you know, spent the you know, rest of my time in my childhood in Burke, uh, up until 1974 when I finished my HSC, and then I went to Sydney.
0: So, so did everyone move to Sydney, or you just came to Sydney?
1: Oh, I had uh, older siblings in Sydney. There's, you know, something like about 16 years or so, 16, 17 years between myself and my oldest brother. My eldest brother, my uh, oldest sister, you know, they, they, they were working in Sydney, living and working in Sydney. And by the time I finished school, I had two other brothers that were living down there as well, who, you know, the ones that are sort of immediately older than me. So they were living there, and I had a had a place to go to, and that's that's where uh, we lived in uh, a unit in Punchbowl together with another fellow. So there were four of us renting.
0: And so you started working.
1: Yeah, I, so I started working in the insurance industry. You know, like I, I spent my formative years in Byrock. Very, very fond fond memories of Byrock. Love the place. Really, really have a connection with the, the land and and uh, that sort of stuff there. But um, you know, Burke, um, that was uh, a, a little bit different you know I I sort of really like going to school and and um, you know making you know had some really good friends Um, and yeah I did sort of quite well at school I think and and uh, was in a sort of an A-stream all the way and as far as uh, having a dream as a child living up in the country in those uh, circumstances and with that sort of backstory Didn't have a really big dream about going to university or, you know, traveling the world or anything like that. My dream was sort of to get out of the place. (laughs) So I said, like, I'm I'm really going to Sydney, and I'm going to get a job in an office, which is what I did.
0: So, and you ended up, I know you ended up in Canberra at some point, didn't
1: you? Oh yeah, so so I spent a number of years working in Sydney in the insurance industry and uh, so I did sort of quite well at that, but I wasn't sort of really happy and... uh, I, I went to university as a, a, an adult, as a mature age student. Well, I was aged and I like to think I was mature. <laughs> so I went to university as a mature age student. And, and what were you uh, studying? I studied the uh, social sciences. I actually uh, majored in uh, economics, history and sociology. So I sort of majored in the social sciences had no idea what I was really doing. I sort of liked the sound of macro and, e- and microeconomics. So I sort of thought, find out what this is all about and ended up loving it and majored in it. So I, I got into the public service after that. I worked in uh, Department of Aboriginal Affairs in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I was a regional consultant uh, based out in, in Bathurst. So I had my office out there and and uh, moved down to Canberra. Uh, I was there, yeah, I got married and, and, and had a child, my son Jesse, and uh, moved down to, he was born in Canberra and uh, worked for the um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, ATSIC. So it was a number of years there and, and then transferred to Sydney in around 2000. I left the public service because uh, well, well, I wasn't really entirely happy. I, I, f- I found it soul-destroying. I felt that government engaged with community on government's terms and I really felt that community should engage with government on community's terms. So, uh, you know, it was a bit of a move for me, but I left and, 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 and uh, started focusing my energies on community.
0: Absolutely, and that's, mm. and that's how I met you, working, mm. um, working with community. And I know you're very passionate about it. You're very passionate about um, inclusivity of not just uh, Aboriginal people, but multicultural people. I know you're very passionate about bringing people together and talking. And to be honest with you, that's why we're here, uh, because your influence has encouraged me to start Yarn About You. Because sitting down with you and talking to you and seeing you give people the time has been a massive influence on on me um, over the last couple of years, and um, yeah, I'm really, I really love sitting down and talking to people. So thank you for that. Well, well first I th- of all.
1: Yeah, th- thank you. Thank you. I, I think Australia is a good country. I don't think it will ever be a great country until we come to t- terms with the past. We've got to uh, somehow acknowledge the past, f- find a way to uh, acknowledge it, what's and all, and find a way to integrate that into our lives. So we can look into the, the rear vision mirror and uh, see that we've come a long way, and I think that's a really good thing. But there is uh, a, a way to go yet, and uh, that really involves being able to reconcile ourselves with uh, everybody that's living in this land at the moment, all Aboriginal people. So at that at that level itself, as I was saying earlier, that uh, traditionally, you know, Aboriginal people had differences and then we were put onto missions and, and problems sort of arose from that and we've got to come to terms with those things as well, being ripped away from our land and our culture, our heritage and, and uh, you know the traditions and customs that come with it. So now we find ourselves in the 21st century. In some sense we're all on the same raft but our stories as to how we got onto this raft are different. And I think all those stories need to be told. More than that, I think we need to reconnect with our spirituality. And I really mean that at a, at a sort of quite a deep level. And I think the way to reconnect with our spirituality requires uh, at least a, a, a spiritual journey. We need to somehow reach back and touch our culture, our heritage in the place that we come from. So uh, when when the British came over here on the First Fleet, they brought with them keepsakes. And the reason why they brought keepsakes with them is because you can't clean slate. You've got to be able to reach back and touch before you can move forward. So uh, if you're of british heritage for example and you know your second third fourth fifth generation british heritage and you're living in in australia well there's two things i think you really need to do you need to be able to if you haven't really done it as yet is to reach back and touch your own spirituality which means which requires not necess- necessarily a physical journey back to the homeland but certainly a spiritual journey back to, to be able to touch that and bring that into your presence. Then find a way to integrate that with the spirituality that's already in this place. Before the British came here, there was a spirituality that came from the land up. Yes. And we need to un- that understand that spirituality and we really need to connect with it. what the British did when they came here as they imposed... A new religion, a new new way of life, a new new economic system, a new political system, a new health system, and I look around today and I see that's still happening. Various groups and and um, political parties um, are imposing narratives on this land that that are um, inconsistent with the spirituality. Now, I don't want to get into that mm. because that's a really big conversation. But absolutely. But. Um, but, you, yeah. but you've mm. explained to me before
0: mm. um, the, the difference between an Indigenous view of nature and the Western view. Can you explain that?
1: See, I think um, we, we've got to really understand um, reconciliation is a really big thing in Australia and the government puts a lot of time and energy into it, some money into it as well, and a lot of good, good people out there long for reconciliation but I don't believe that we'll ever achieve, achieve uh, true reconciliation uh, until we're able to connect at a deep spiritual level. So for Aboriginal people, it really means that we have to go on a journey ourselves if we're not connected to the spirit of this place to connect with the spirituality of this place. Mm-hmm. And, and we can do that looking into stories and mythology. And for someone from overseas, I think they need to do the same go back and and into that spiritual journey also and then when you do that you you find that there's commonality but you also find that there's uh, some fundamental differences and we really need to understand those fundamental differences and be able to reach across that chasm of difference of cultural difference uh, to the other uh, so that we can reconcile those differences What I see happening around us now is is, um, there are certain um, groups or or people who really want to beat people up as if they have differences of opinion. Um, But I think we really need to understand that there's lots of different ways of uh, viewing the world, interpreting the world and, and interacting with it. Because the way we um, think about the world influences our behaviours. So from an Aboriginal perspective, I actually think that we see that, that... When I say we, what I mean is this, because I think there are a lot of Aboriginal people out there who, that, who have been Westernised in their thinking. I wrestle with that all the time because I was like that myself, right? But uh, from that genuine Aboriginal perspective, we see the world subjectively. So we see ourselves as being uh, part of a a greater environment of God, if you will. So in other words, we're in there in relationship with everyone and everything in the environment. So I think the uh, Western world sees uh, things objectively. So you might see a, a tree as an object in nature, or a mountain as an object in nature, or, or a mountain form or a, a river system as objects in nature. And, and then there's this tendency to want to um, understand it and break it down to the, the lowest common denominator. So you, you take a tree, for example, and you break it down to you know, the smallest denominator, the atom or whatever that is, mm-hmm. to, uh, to understand it. Now that's a good thing, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's not the only way of looking at the world where I think indigenous societies around the world, and including here, I think we went on a journey of introspection to understand the outside world and also to understand the cosmos. So that's more sort of looking at things subjectively, that's what I mean by that. And uh, when you start to understand that, I think you can start to see how that influences the way people behave. For example, when I was going through university, um, asking other Aboriginal people what the, what are they doing, most of them studied the social sciences, not the hard sciences. And the reason why they did that was uh, they wanted to give back to their community. And it's really deeply embedded in the DNA of Aboriginal people that are wanting to give give back to the community. They see themselves as a collective. So uh, I think that Aboriginal people or societies uh, generally prior to colonisation, whilst there was a, a fair bit of degree of freedom of expression for the individual, the individual also sacrificed themselves to the, uh, for the collective. And that's, that's uh, evidenced in the uh, initiation ceremony, which I think has got to do with sacrifice. Because it's a pretty uh, harrowing uh, experience that you, they put you through to go through an initiation. I've never been through initiation. But what they're actually saying to, I think, to the initiate is can we rely on you? And the initiative is saying, you can rely on me, I've got your back. So they're sort of sacrificing themselves to the collective, committing themselves to the collective. Where in in the Western society today, and even with Aboriginal people, there's a strong focus on individualism. So it's about rights, individual rights. You know, I have a right to be safe. Well, that's fair enough. But how about the responsibility? Because your right is my responsibility. And so what about you having some responsibility? Two sides of the same coin, I think. We don't talk so much about responsibility. We, there's there's, there's an overwhelming conversation about people's rights today. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think it has to be balanced with responsibility. And I think traditionally the way that was overcome was through uh, the initiation process.
0: So I um, have been spending a lot of time with you over the last couple of years. The thing I love about meeting with any Aboriginal group of people, uh, whether it's here or whether it's Gennigarra in Sydney or wherever it is, um, is the Yarning Circle, and that's where the name of this podcast came from as well, Yarn About You, um, because I love the thought of sitting in a Yarning Circle where everybody's relevant, everybody's included, um, everybody's listened to. It's such an important thing. How have you, as a social person handled something like COVID that came in that stopped you being able to communicate as easily as you do?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, I think it impacted a lot of people in similar ways and and uh, we were cut off from our the niceties of, of life, I think, you know, being able to, you know, have the human touch, being able to shake someone's hand or hug someone. I didn't accept for one moment what politicians were saying that this is the new normal because there was no way that I was going to give up those niceties in life. <laughs> I, I had like, no idea mm, how mm.
0: much of a hugger or a handshaker I was until you weren't allowed to do it. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's just a natural thing, especially with close friends and in the theatre and everybody hugs. It's just something you do. you know, It's just a normal reaction. So to have that taken away was so foreign to everybody to not be able to go and see my parents or you know go, go and see my brother or sister it, it's just unheard of in this day and age let alone um yeah the mental health issues that it causes as well just not being able to socialize um i know that that, that you organize and you are the, the the person that um that puts everything forward to try and get everyone together with the multicultural groups once a month uh, and they're incredible days of people getting together, talking, laughing, sharing stories, sharing food. Amazing food, by the way. Um, but, um, but you know, that, those sorts of days have really made me understand how important it is to stop and listen and talk to people. And I think that's the answer. When you talk about, you know, reconciliation and, and all of that sort of stuff, I think it's just listening. Stop talking and listen to people.
1: I, I think it's a grassroots movement, and... Uh, I really think you you're spot on. I think that uh you know, the more we share our stories, the more we learn about each other and understand each other and and also I think you know the more we know about us learn about ourselves because it causes us to um to reflect and and sort of go inward as well and and uh understand understand our you know identity and our true values and um but uh the the as you said the food is great and and mm. but that's not the primary reason for doing it you know we really uh i, I think when we share food and i said we, um this in the beginning of the Five Lands walk in 2005 when we were starting down this path with the first Five Lands walk was in 2006 but as as far back as 2005 i was saying we have got to have food and people thought i was off off the planet you mm. know and uh I, I said, well, you know, but we have to have food because something else happens when you share food. It not only fills the gap in your stomach, it fills the gaps between us. And uh, so it's really important, you know, when we talk about the circle in Aboriginal cultures, not not just Aboriginal cultures in Australia, but Indigenous cultures around the world, the circle's really important because, um, you know, we can all... Uh, we're, we're all sort of uh, facing each other. We can, we can uh, uh, communicate and, and uh, you know, we're able to share stories. And, and I think it, it also, um, you, you mentioned the uh, mental illness as a result of uh, the COVID. Well, uh, I think those are the sorts of things that connect people and make life meaningful. It gives you a reason to, uh, you know, get up over the morning and, and be able to... Uh, and, and you you know that you're part of a community At, and you have a place in that community and also you have a voice. I've, I've found within community, and and I've been sort of working in this for decades now, the Aboriginal voice is very small. We've got to find some way to centre the Aboriginal voice, the Aboriginal perspective, and and to elevate it to a place of significance where people are able to respect and understand it.
0: I know um, we've spoken before about New Zealand, Mm. and New Zealand do it really well. When you're on New Zealand land, you feel the Maori heritage. You know that it's there. It's part of the land. Um, and and that's that's what we're lacking in a lot of areas in Australia I know it's there in, um, in in various communities but it's not right through and a lot of people particularly in the cities don't understand um, the heritage that comes from it we know it's there but no but nobody really looks into it I know going out to places like War Warren do you want to explain what worry Warren is
1: well War Warren is an Aboriginal place it's designate, designated that name uh, because of the the uh Cultural significance. It has thousands of Aboriginal sites, um, artwork and, and other uh, sites there. And uh, it, it's in, it's about 910 hectares. It's uh, owned by State Forests and uh, State Forests are in a, in a partnership with the Dark and Jung Local Aboriginal Land Council as caretakers of, of that. And, uh, but it, it, it's, it's a really significant place for Aboriginal people.
0: And, and going out to Wariwara and, and um, walking down through the bush to find a cave that's got handprints and Aboriginal drawings that have been there for thousands of years is just, there's just no, I've never felt anything like it before. I've seen um, artwork in the past, but, but I know that, that day changed me um, in a big way. It was, it was absolutely incredible. I'll put some pictures up as well on the Facebook page. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it's something that I think everybody should see. Everybody should go to and um, and yeah, j- just to understand that you know we have our bicentenary and we have things that we celebrate um, for you know a couple of hundred years. Well, this is thousands of years, and um, and to hear the stories and to see uh, the handprints of people and children that that were there right where you are um, is yeah, it, it's definitely talk about spiritual journeys.
1: I, th- I think it's really humbling to be able you know to sit down there. Next to a child's handprint, and you know that handprint's at least three thousand years old, and so some older, perhaps, and uh, and it, because it's been authenticated, it's not a figure that we pulled out of the air. It's been um, authenticated um, various methods, but what it, what it really highlights for me is the the fact that there is a spirituality in this land that comes from the ground up, and that's getting back to that journey that I was talking about or alluding to that. Um, we really um, take Christianity. The Western society, I think, is predicated on Christian values. The the um, common law is is predicated on the Ten Commandments: "Thou shalt not kill," "Thou shalt not steal," all that sort of stuff. And uh, it it really at some some level we sort of know all that, you know, and and um, uh, we see that manifest in our society today, in the legal system, in in the uh, you know education system, in lots lots of ways. Um, but that is that ca- came up from another land, somewhere else. It, its roots are in another land overseas, and. Uh, it was brought here and imposed on the people, and imposed on the land, and well, I think we've got to really understand that there is a spirituality here, and uh, so what what should they have done? Well, I think what they should have done is to bring their Christianity here, but find a way to either bury it in the ground and see what comes up, or graft it onto the spirit of this place that's already here, and uh, so and. and that requires some journey to do that. In order to do that, you really got to understand where those Christian values come from and how it shapes thinking, and understand the Aboriginal uh, stories and spirituality and how that sort of shapes the thinking and behaviour of people here. And then I think we have half a chance when we understand it at that, that level of uh, true reconciliation. As a, as a friend of mine, Dave Bowman, always says, you know, is this meaning to be true, or or does it have true meaning? I think that's what he says. Mm. Or it might be the other way around. You know, does this have mean tr- true meaning, or is it just meaning to be true?
0: Yeah, mm. I um, and I often hear you talk about the correlation between Western religion and um, spirituality of the Aboriginal people as well.
1: Yeah, well, it's see. If, if you sort of um, take the idea that religion or spirituality comes from the ground up, then it stands to reason that there's going to be commonality among all religions around the world because the one thing that we have in common is Mother, is the Earth. It stands to reason that there's going to be Commonality between religions because the one thing that we have in common is the earth, the mother. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The story of Moses coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments is, you know, he comes down after, uh, after communing with God, with the divine, with the rules of life. Well, there's a story that's engraved out at Mount Yango on the central coast here, uh, and I think Mount Yango is one of the most sacred sites in the world because it's in within the Aboriginal mythology here. This is where God stepped down. It's it's a flat-top mountain, but it's where God stepped down. It's where Bayami, the great creator, stepped down, the divine stepped down there. You don't get any more uh, sacred than that. And... Uh, so the story goes something like this, that uh, Bayami came down with Turangong the whale who brought the kinship system with him to share and teach the people. And they spent some time here teaching the people the rules of life, the kinship system. And Bayami goes back up into the sky world and Turangong the whale transforms from a sky spirit to a water spirit and goes out to the ocean. That's a very short description of that story. There's much more to it. But the thing is... When you look at those two stories, I think they're the same. God or the divine comes down with the rules of life in both instances. In the biblical story of Moses, it's prescribed. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not rape, or you know, thou, sh- thou shalt not steal. It's prescribed to the people. In the aboriginal story from here, the divine spends time with the people teaching them and sharing with them and then goes back up into the sky world well that tells us that the divine or god is in relationship with us and the whale is here that's the totem for this country the whale is here as a reminder of that so it's more sort of descriptive i think so those two things are not the same so what it tells us and i don't want to get political here given that my aboriginal perspective of the environment mm-hmm. movement uh, we we have a situation today where in the environment movement, the dominant narrative is climate change and that carbon is the problem. So that's a very Western way of looking at things. They've lowered it down to this uh, uh, lowest common denominator, this one thing they've picked on and said, well, this is the problem. And if we can manipulate the carbon, sort of think about it as some sort of dial on a thermostat that you, you can move to manipulate the environment. Well, that's one way of thinking about it. But from an Aboriginal perspective, we're in relationship with. So we are country. Mm. We are we are part of this natural world. Our job then is to be in relationship. So it's not about manipulating, picking on one thing and, and uh, trying to sort of manipulate that. It's about the question then becomes, what is our relationship with the environment? Is it good? Well, if the relationship is not good it means that something may be out of balance so our job then is not to fix the environment our job is to fix the relationship hmm. i don't know know the answers to those questions i mean they're sort of very deep philosophical questions if you really want to explore those oh, things come but on phil we were supposed to sort out <laughs> all the problems today well it takes you to a you know very very sort of uh, uh deep into sort of uh, you know a religious sort of spiritual uh debate i think yeah. and um we can have that sometime, and and uh, it, you know, it, I, I, I think we need to have it, really.
0: Absolutely, Alex, it's fascinating. I love I love delving off into things with you. You know mm. that. Mm. Um, but but one thing you touched on before, I know, I think we need to talk about, is the Five Lands Walk. Can you explain to people what the Five Lands Walk is and how you became involved?
1: Yeah, well, the, the Five Lands Walk is an event that we have on the central coast. I think it's the premier event on the central coast. We attract uh, in. 2019, before the pandemic struck, we had uh, 22,000, 24,000 people turn up to the Five Lands Walk, over 10 kilometres from McMaster's Beach to Terrigal, and it takes in the surf club communities of McMaster's Beach, Copacabana, Avoka, North Avoca, and Terrigal. It's animated along the way with festivities, so each of those surf club communities, we have festivals, so it's designed in a way that you can actually go to one place and stay there the whole day and be entertained. Everything we put on is free. We have a a sponsorship program that uh, enables us to do that, so everything we put on is is free, and busways on the Central Coast actually um, provide their buses for the day, and people can jump on and off the buses, they can go to the various uh, places if they don't want to walk it. They can go and, and uh, catch a free bus there and jump on and off and go to any of the other places as well along the way. You can walk it from McMaster's Beach to Terrigal, so you can drive your car to Terrigal and catch a bus down to McMaster's Beach and walk back up and uh, get a taste of all the different festivals along the way, which includes... Um, people from uh, lots of different multicultural communities doing things along the way, um, performances, dance music, live music, food, workshops, uh, animal displays, uh, ephemera art along the beat, art, art exhibitions and photographic exhibitions at the surf clubs. So I, I think it's very unique in the world really as to what we're doing here, certainly unique in Australia. And So the Five Lands Walk started in, in, uh, the first one we had was in 2006. At that time it was the Gosford City Council, a lady named Helen Polkinghorne worked at the Gosford City Council and she went over to the Cinque Terre in Italy and came back and she said, look, we've got a much better coastline here, we could do something like that here and uh, a friend of mine who was working at the council at the time, Elia Gaddy, a cultural officer there, and I was doing some other work with him involved in the Arimba Protocol, which is another story as well. The Arimba Protocol was uh, a community coming together with government, uh, creating this protocol to partner, well, community partnering with government to manage the uh, forestry from the central coast right up to Coffs Harbour co-manage. So we were sort of on a journey with that, and then uh, Elio Gatti then suggested to Helen he knew people at um, Avoca, Pauline Wright and Con Ryan, maybe others as well, I'm not quite sure, but they were certainly talking a bit about um, doing something at Avoca, which brings together sport and art. So uh, Elio Gatti brought us all together, and there were other people involved and uh, the first Five Lands Walk came about in 2006. It was um, sort of informed by uh, Aboriginal culture and perspectives and also uh, ritualised. So from the very beginning, I saw the Five Lands Walk as a journey of reconciliation. And the fundamental question that underpins the Five Lands Walk is how do we live in this land with joy, which goes to the heart of reconciliation and I think that is a conversation that we really need to have and that sort of uh, you know, goes to what we were talking about previously, about that spiritual journey of reaching back and touching your, your own spirituality and, and uh, understanding that and bringing it to this land, finding a way to graft it onto the spirit of this place. So in a sense, for me anyway, that's what the Five Lands Walk is about Uh, there are a lot of different levels of it we we wouldn't have sort of time to go into now but it's growing in popularity it's growing exponentially and it's it's also evolving We, we have it on a saturday closest to winter solstice and that's for spiritual reasons and it also coincides with the whale migration north which, and the whale being the totem for this country. So uh, we pay homage to the whale and, and uh, we do lots of other things as well, the Five Lands Walk.
0: I'm, um, I'm lucky enough to have been invited by you onto the committee, um, the Aboriginal Committee of the Five Lands Walk. And um, I know there were 22,000 people, you said, in 2019. Mm. In 2021, there were, what, 12 of us? Well, only, oh, yeah. like a small amount yeah. so so we just did the walk because COVID had just kind of peaked and um, we were allowed to social distance and a small group of us do it and it was the, the day was perfect by the way um, but I remember a, a couple of things that happened um, doing the walk we stopped at um, the lagoon between Copa and uh, McMasters and met Danella Waters the beautiful Donella Waters and um, Danella started talking about the importance of the eagle um, just then, the eagles flew over, right over the top of us, mm. and um, and Pauline Wright was videoing it, so we've got that on video. Uh, later on, we're up at Winnie Bay, and um, Deb Swan was talking about whales. Just then, a whale breached right where we were, mm. and um. So so yeah, there were a couple of things that happened that day that were just amazing. But oh, um, mm. but to do the walk without any festivities was incredible, let alone on the day. And I know that um. We've got a lot of exciting things planned for the coming years, and um, it's only going to get better. So I'm very excited to see what happens.
1: Well, our our aim is that you know people can do the walk 365 days of a year, so Mm -hmm. it's uh, actually reflects a a, well. It actually, I think, can reflect the personal journey. Uh, So, uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. In 2019. Where over 22,000 people uh, came on the walk and people from, you know, Sydney, Newcastle and other other parts of Australia. But we're also starting to attract people from around the world as well. So our reach is, is extending. And uh, the uh, it was cancelled in 2020 because of COVID. And in 2021, we had a virtual Five Lands Walk, not in June but in September, that's why the weather was really nice. But the synergy on that day, it was just 12, about a dozen of us walking and uh, and I, I was really determined to walk it because I don't get a chance to walk it when the Five Lands Walk is actually on because I have other duties elsewhere and I'm sort of most mostly confined to one space but I was really determined to walk it and uh, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to come along and share those things. And I thought I thought it was quite spooky actually that the eagle appears when <laughs> it was, when it was. when uh, Donella is talking about it. It was almost like uh, you know um, putting its uh, imprimatur on what we're doing. And also then the whale breach would have been about a half an hour or so later when we're up at uh, uh, the Win- Winnie Bay cliff top near near uh, Captain Cook Lookout, which is actually called. Uh, the uh, traditional name is Bulburaring. So uh, when when those two things happened, I, I you know I, th- I thought it was sort of quite spooky. <laughs> it was. It was amazing. Yeah. Just an amazing day. Oh look, just just a, just a, a, a interesting story. We, our first walk was in two thousand and six. So we have this uh, ceremony which we call the awakening, and uh, we, the first awakening ceremony that we had, which is a dawn ceremony. It greets the rising sun, the first light, and and. Um, we were de- actually at Cochrane Lagoon between McMaster's Beach and Copacabana and uh, the sun rises at that time of the year around about 7 o'clock and uh, we were down there like 4am. So we had a fire, we, we did this ceremony, quite a lot of people turned out actually, dozens of people turned out. There was this lady singing uh, a whale song around 7am. The sun was coming up so starting to get light. And four whales just breached off McMaster's Beach, not far from where we were, and they put on an incredible display. Wow. And all of us raced over to the edge of the water and looked out, and I think we got some film of it mm. as well. Yeah, that was just this incredible synergy. I've never seen it happen since. The first Five Lands Walk, we had about 700 people turn out. Mm. We now have actually over 700 volunteers. Mm. <laughs> so we're doing quite, quite well. The second year we had the Five Lands Walk, the whales came riding right really close. I've never seen them so close. And, and it was like, are we watching the whales or are the whales watching us?
0: If, um, if anybody would like to see the virtual walk, I know it's still on the Five Lands Walk website. So if you, if you search Five Lands Virtual Walk, I'm sure that, that it would still be there. Uh, the walk itself is 10 kilometres, but it really isn't a hard walk because it's not a race. Um, you can take your time I think we started about seven o'clock in the morning and we didn't get to um, Terrigal until about four in the afternoon so it was a leisure, leisurely stroll we were able to stop we had lunch and when the actual five lands walk is on there's so much to see so much artwork so much amazing community spirit and you will be hearing about it more um guaranteed we've got a lot of big plans coming for five lands walk and it's really exciting
1: and the Aboriginal uh, community will be at North of Oka this year and we'll have the people from multicultural communities joining us, so African communities, Greek communities and probably more, joining us at North of Oka and we'll be doing things like, uh, you know, craft, There's be traditional weaving, uh, making possum coats, or I think something like that, that Deb Swan is planning. She's the chair of the Aboriginal committee.
0: Will there be bunionuts? I love
1: bunionuts. Um, I think I've eaten all the bunionuts. Oh, I think them. I ate plenty of them too. <laughs> <laughs> Worry about that, We had a bumper crop this year <laughs> and we had a little bit of a get together at the Narara Eco Village a month or so ago.
0: Yum. Yeah, they're beautiful. Very exciting. Five Lands Walk. A lot is happening. Keep an eye out for it. Um, can I ask you a special favour? Sure. Can you tell me the story of Tiddlywink?
1: Tiddlywink I want to hear it. <laughs> no it's not Tilly it's Tiddly the Frog Ah oh, Tiddling the Frog Tiddlick Tiddlick Tiddly the Frog Yeah well it, it's it's a fascinating story I think at at um at one level it's it's a it uh you know a quaint children's story at another it's got all these levels of interpretation and out of every you know deep sort of spiritual level it's got a r- lot of relevance for us today but uh, Tilik was the largest animal in in the world, and uh, the one morning woke up, and uh, just outside his shelter where he's sleeping, uh, saw some water and drank it. You know, water in a pond and drank it, and uh, loved the water so much that. Uh, went on to another pond and drank the water in that and then uh, every time he was drinking the water he kept on getting bigger and bigger and then uh, so so he went on and uh, you know drank all the water in the rivers drank it dry and then all the water in the ocean and the billabongs everything until the, there was no more water left and till the frog every time he drank the water became bigger and bigger and bigger until there was no water and then he went up on his little hill and quite sort of uh, satisfied with himself sort of stat, sat there and, uh, but the problem was is that all the plants and animals were suffering and, and uh, everybody, everything was starting to wilt and die and so all the animals got together and they said what do we do? So the wise old owl comes up with this solution and says, well, only we can make him laugh, we'll make him give up all the water. So all the animals got together with their special talents and the kangaroo could do all sorts of acrobatic tricks, you know, could do front somersaults and back somersaults and all that sort of stuff. So he said, let me go up, I'll I'll give him a bit of acrobatic show. And and, uh, so he went up to this hill where Tilly was and, and did all these tricks and no laughter. Tiddlick just sort of sat there, stony faced, and then you know the emu went up and did the dance, and then the the uh, kookaburra said, i the funniest animal of all. I'll go up and give him, you know, tell him all these jokes." And they uh, went up and told him all the f- funniest jokes in the world, and still Tiddlick didn't laugh. So animal after animal went up and didn't move Tiddlick, and then Norang the eel comes along, no water. Narang is suffering and and, uh, can't sort of move much at all. And he said, um, I'll go up and turn to Narang the eel. And I said, Well, what can you do? And he said, Well, just give me a go. And they said, All right. So he goes, sort of wriggles up there. As halfway up, starts to sort of tie itself in a bit of a knot and tiddly looks down. And then uh, the eel is struggling getting up there to him, going through all sorts of uh, trouble trying to get there and then Tidlick sort of looks down and thinks this is one of the funniest things he's seen in his whole life, you know, and his mouth starts to, uh, you you know, go into a little bit of a grin and then uh, finally Tidlick Tidlick bursts out laughing and then all the water pours out of Tidlick into the billabongs and the ponds and the rivers and the oceans and replenishes everything and then Tidlick for being... uh, is punished and turned into lots of little frogs. Well, there's two endings to the story. One is turned into lots of little frogs and in the as punishment in another, uh, Tiddalik is turned to stone. And I, li- I like sort of both endings, really. The ending that really uh, intrigues me in this is when Tiddalik is actually uh, t- turned into lots of little frogs. It seems to be a theme in Aboriginal mythology there is a sort of, a, I think a wolf woman or something like that is, is, is pretty big and, and uh, creates a lot of havoc and, and, and gets turned into two dogs. But I think the thing is that is that if you think of Tiddalik in terms of large corporations or large governments, or, they get so big that uh, they lose contact with the people. It's the same problem that I was feeling when I was working in the, in the government. I thought that we were sort of too removed from the people. Yeah. So when cuz when things get really big and big and big and then then you sort of uh lose touch. So the aboriginal solution to, to that was to uh make them smaller, to break them into, you know, smaller uh, components. And uh you know, I think there's some wisdom uh, in there that we can yeah. sort of learn from. I think it's a similar story in some ways to the Tower of Babel in in the Bible. Cuz you know, uh, they, they build this, the people build this really big tower, and I guess you know, to I think to reach God, and then and then uh, uh, it gets so big it sort of crushes under its, uh, its own mm. weight, mm. and and then people talk in tongues. And uh, so uh, you know, when I look around the world today and look at what's happening in Ukraine with Russia invading Ukraine, I mean, Russia was getting big, and and and, and uh. Ukraine are fighting back, and, and and I think having some victories, it seems, I mean, you know, at, at great loss, unfortunately. But when uh, you know you look at um, governments, when governments get really big, then we sort of de- you know the solution <laughs> to that is to devolve. And when you look at, um, I, I won't get into the any detail in these things, but when you look at movements around the world today, they're getting bigger and bigger. And uh, you've got to ask yourself, at some stage, I think they're going to fall down under their own weight.
0: Well, they end up getting a momentum and they lose, like you said, they lose contact with the people, they lose contact with the focus of what they're there for and they end up growing to the point where it doesn't mean anything anymore.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that sort of, uh, you know, and this is quite controversial, I think, the statement, but, uh, you know, you look at the uh, LGBTQIA uh, community, it's just getting bigger and bigger and, uh, you know, you get... And uh, I just don't, don't really know where that's going to go. Uh, you know, I, I support, support people who um, you know, are going, going through um, change, changes and, and coming to terms with their bodies and, and their sexuality and, and things like that. But um, as a movement, uh, that's going to be interesting to follow and see where it goes.
0: But I think, um, I th- I think a lot of it stems from people feeling like they're not understood. And, um, and a, a lot of this can be uh, sorted out or understood better if we're in a yarning circle. So if we get together and we listen to each other, I know even um, I was lucky enough to come down to Canberra on Australia Day this year, 2022, mm-hmm. and, um, and for the 50th anniversary of the 10th embassy with the Darkinjung bus, Darkinjung um, Local Aboriginal Land Council. And, um, and to be able to see the difference between the march... And what it was like being on the green with everybody there um, outside Old Parliament House was a stark difference. Now, all you see on the news is the chanting and the swearing and, and um, you know, like it's like a violent image of, um, you know, land rights and that's and that, that's all it is. But on the green, for the rest of the day, it was the most amazing festival kind of feeling of everybody mixing together, everybody talking. How many times somebody kind of touched me on the shoulder and said, g'day brother, where are you from? And having a chat with people who we didn't know, but um, but there was it was just such a happy, um, happy feeling. But so, um, when you talk about movements, unfortunately, it gets to the point where the media helps them grow to a point where that's all you see, and it's um, that's the most frustrating thing for me, particularly seeing it hands on, like watching it happen down there on Australia Day. Was um, it, it's it's quite frustrating really because it, it kind of takes any good away. You, know, you can un- almost understand why people get annoyed when that's all they see.
1: Well, I think the media amplifies the negative because it sells news. Absolutely. And unfortunately, because there are a lot of good things happening within Aboriginal community, and that day was uh, a really positive day, you know, being being there and uh, reconnecting with people and meeting new people and, and uh, reaffirming relationships or, or connections with um, people from the Central Coast, going down there on the bus together and uh, having our marquee and sitting around and having, having, having a chat together and sharing some food. I I think that's the sort of thing that we really need to do to break down those barriers and to, uh, I guess, build relationships.
0: Spend time. Listen. Listen to people.
1: Well, it's what I mean by the small voice, you know. Why are Aboriginal people marching in the 21st century and screaming land rights? Because they feel like they're not being heard. In 1983, we had the Aboriginal Land Rights Act New South Wales, and, and that was a good thing and it enabled communities to come together to um, claim vacant Crown land and, and do some good things with it. A lot of op- opportuni- opportunities to uh, come out of that, and then in 1993 you have the Federal Government's Native Title Act which enables uh, fam- families and individuals to claim native title. You know, on my father's side, we've got native title up in Queensland, in Cullerley country, and you uh, there's, what, 32,000 square kilometres that we, we have under native title. But there are a lot of restrictions with that as well. And uh, so, it's, you know, it's not as uh, good as it might sound. So w- we look in the rear vision mirror and we see how far we've come. We've, c- we've come a fair way. But something must be going on if Aboriginal people are coming together en masse and, and, and still, um, you know, protesting and... Uh, screaming land rights and uh, I, I've, I think it's indicative of a, of a deeper issue and uh, so we really need to understand what that is I think and, and uh, so on that day it was a total contrast as you said on the green Absolutely. in front of uh, Parliament House uh, the old Parliament House that is where we, uh, uh, it was really positive, a uh, really great energy and uh then the uh the the march itself was a different energy mm. uh, i'm not not saying it was bad i'm just saying that it was a different yeah ab- absolutely different a different energy it, it, but i th- i think it it's something to do with look you're still not really listening to us yeah
0: and i think that's th- that's the same issue with what you're talking about the LGB um tqi um yeah. Message is is that people just feel like they're not being listened, no matter no matter what it is.
1: Well, they cl- they coalesce around a, 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 a an idea or or um, a need, and then I, I guess that enables them to sort of uh, you know or gives them a megaphone of some kind. Look, I, I think the words that Aboriginal people speak at protests are heard, not necessarily understood. And that's where we got to, uh, you know, get to. We've got to get to a, pla- a place where we really understand each other. And I think in order to get to that pl- place, we've really got to know ourselves. So, you know, I've got to know myself, um, my values and, and uh, my Aboriginal cultural heritage and, uh, you know, where I come from. But there's more to me than that. You know, I've, I've got uh, uh, heritage that goes offshore as well, you know, on, on my my dad's side uh uh, his um father um english that that doesn't make me any less aboriginal but it really means that i have to come to terms with it because that makes me who i am it's part of my identity and and i i can't uh reject that i can but if i did i think it would be to my detriment I've got to uh, reconcile that within myself and then uh, know myself and my values and what I stand for. And same as you, and I I think same as everybody else. And I think when you go on that journey, I think it really takes you back to a spirituality.
0: It does. I mean, I've I've always had, um, obviously, Aboriginal heritage on my mother's side. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's just popped up. Um, it's always been there, but, but COVID has really made me change my thinking of everything, my thinking of what's important, my thinking of what I can give back to community. Um, and I've spent a lot of time um, on, on committees now. I've never been on a committee before in my life, but you know, I'm on, I'm on a, a little theatres committee. I'm on the Aboriginal committee for the um, Five Lands Walk, which is amazing, um, and I'm on the Copa Arts community, community here with a whole lot of artists in, um, in Copa Gabbana where I live in New South Wales um, but, but yeah it's really made me look at who we are and what we do and how we interact with people and what's important and, um, and I know that your passion for community and um, uh, just communication has really helped me over the last couple of years so thank you very much for that um, I think it's very important that everybody um, does learn more about it and they can contact their local um, Aboriginal Land Council. Um, here on the central coast, it's Darkinjung, Darkinjung Local Aboriginal Land Council. You're a member of Darkinjung. Um, Phil, what, what actually is a, a land council, Aboriginal Land Council?
1: A land council is formed under the uh, New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act. 1983. So that enables community uh, Aboriginal people uh, in uh, a community to come together and uh, form a local Aboriginal land council. And under the the Act, they're also able to claim uh, vacant Crown land and do various things with that. And uh, so. It's it's a really um, important organisation, and on the Central Coast, I see the Darkinjung Local Aboriginal Land Council as being the cultural authority on the Central Coast, and uh, there there are lots of other Aboriginal organisations on the coast, but that's I think the ultimate uh, cultural authority, and uh, being it's, it's so it's really important to be. Member of that and be connected with the Aboriginal people on the coast, but then uh, you know, we, we also got to find a way for Aboriginal people to be part of the rest of the community on the coast as well. So, in the context of understanding that the Aboriginal people living on the central coast in Jung country are diverse, we, we come from all over the place. Uh, you, you heard my story or part of my story, and then that's true. For for most Aboriginal people on the coast, except for maybe a handful. And and uh, I think the population on the central coast is close to about 12,000 now, something like that. Um, so that's growing. Uh, around about 20 years ago, it was around about 8,000. So it's a, uh, increased by about 50% in 15 to 20 years. Mm. So... Uh, uh, Yeah, so we we really need ourselves to, as Aboriginal people, to understand the spirit of this place because it's not necessarily the same as where we were born or where we have our Aboriginal cultural roots. And um, you know, we need need to be. I think it's essential to be connected with that uh, uh, local, uh, that spirituality from here. And, and that requires, uh, you know, a, a journey in and of itself. And then uh, once we are able to do that, then, you know, we're in a much stronger position, I think, to be able to ha- have a m- much more meaningful and reconciled relationship with... Um, that ..that's true reconciliation with, um, you know, peop- people from multicultural communities and the broader community.
0: Now, I know Brendan Moyle, the, um, the CEO of Dark and Jung... Local Aboriginal Land Council is very supportive, um, particularly of pulling community together. I know they're um, they're they're a lot more involved. The Darkinjung Council with um, uh, Five Lands Walk this year, and um, and and yeah, they've got a lot of exciting things coming up um, uh, culturally in the next couple of years, particularly. So if there's any information you'd like to find out, if you just Google Darkinjung Local Aboriginal Land Council um, and Google the Five Lands Walk. Um, that there's a lot of stuff happening this year, but Phil, thank you very, very much for today. You know I love talking to you, and you know I'm going to have you on here again one day. <laughs> um, so it's good.
1: I'll see if I can bring some more people along, but yeah, no, it's been great to talk, and I th- you know appreciate the opportunity.
0: Absolutely, you know you're welcome anytime, so and, and and
1: all the best with uh, what is it, yarning about you? Yarn about you. Yeah, I love thing. the inac- the acronym Yay!
0: Yay! Yeah, no, <laughs> it's exciting. That's what I said because when I, when I saw it, the, the logo and everything came together so yeah. easily. Yes. As soon as it, as soon as I thought, yeah, yarn about you, mm-hmm. it's so important what it means, and um, and yeah, and the yay bit was just a bonus.
1: So, yeah, thank you yeah, very com- very much. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you.
0: Yarn about you is a centre stage creative production. Follow us on Facebook by searching Yarn About You. Or visit yarnaboutyou.com.au for more information about the podcast and our guests.